This is the man in black here. A shadow lord. He's alive. Alive! Welcome to the 2018 Retroist Halloween special. I have done these specials for a number of years, and then took a bit of a break. This year I decided to reactivate them with a very express purpose, which is to let other people tell their stories. Now, the Retroist podcast is divided generally into two sections, one very small section at the front, where I tell a story about something related to the subject matter, and then I get into the subject matter. Some people love those stories, other people fast forward through them. This podcast is for people who enjoy those stories. So on today's show, I'm not going to tell a story of my own. Instead, I'm going to introduce a couple of people who either write on The Retroist or who follow me on Twitter or Facebook and allow them to tell stories about their Halloweens. we got a great group of people. Some of them you might know from the podcast or from the blog. Others you might be hearing for the first time. I think you'll enjoy hearing from them. So without further ado, let's start the show. First up is Josh, who's going to tell you a little bit about a Halloween special starring everyone's favorite large orange cat, Garfield. Although I'm a lifelong horror movie enthusiast, and that of course always makes the month of October an extra special time of year, I do admit that when I think about a favorite childhood moment from Halloween, that memory is TV related. The first thing that pops into my mind when contemplating a nostalgic Halloween memory is Garfield's Halloween Adventure, which is evidently also known as Garfield in Disguise. As much as the cartoon itself, I can equally remember the mesmerizing CBS special presentation theme song that led into the animated program on the evening of October 30th, 1985, and how it really made you feel like something immensely exciting was about to grace your living room TV. Despite households all having VCRs by then, the mid-1980s were still very much the time of anticipated appointment television. Halloween specials were just as magical as the Christmas time variety that would start up a month or so later. And for a kid who likes scary stuff like I did, this Garfield tale holds as special a place in my geek heart as much more vintage holiday classics the like of How the Grinch Stole Christmas or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer do for most. Legendary voice actor Lorenzo Music played the title character Garfield, the gluttonous house cat who is very excited to get Halloween candy. A slight twist is that especially for a little kid, the story tiptoes towards some legitimate horror elements. It was strange for a Saturday morning cartoon-looking program on in family-friendly network primetime that was based on a heavily merchandised and fairly tame newspaper comic strip. While out trick-or-treating, Garfield and his housemate dog frenemy Odie end up on a creepy island in a spooky house. An almost cryptkeeper of an old man tells them a story of a ruthless and murderous band of pirates who sign a contract written in blood 100 years ago, 
who promised to return from the grave 100 years later on Halloween night to retrieve their buried treasure. Unlike It's a Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, there are actual ghosts. Not a dream, not imagined. There are genuine, scary, supernatural ghosts, more frightening than Scooby-Doo-style fake monster fare. In what I found to be a quite harrowing plot point, Garfield even almost drowns, saved by Odie. Not quite nightmare-inducing, but it was effective, creepy fun for kids. It was very memorable stuff for me, and it was the perfect thing to watch before going to bed the night before Halloween. Next up is Allison. Allison's going to tell a story about how a well-decorated house can make a powerful impression to a trick-or-treater. In 1993, I was in fifth grade. I was 11 years old. To date, this was the only Halloween that had actually rained. And all the times that I went out trick-or-treating, and I think even after I stopped going trick-or-treating and as an adult, this was the only Halloween that had ever rained. And it was very unpleasant, to say the least. We didn't have a huge neighborhood, but, you know, it still was kind of crappy to go out trick-or-treating in the rain. But actually, it made it nice and eerie, especially when the... uh, you know, streetlights came on because uh, we went out at night and um, we went with, it was me and my brother and uh, our one friend who lived up the street and his, his brother, but his brother kind of gave up about, you know, about halfway because he was younger. Uh, so we were out trick-or-treating around this one street and this guy's house, uh, you could see it on his garage. There was what looked like a silhouette of like a horror movie going on. It was really strange. It looked like Barbie dolls. And I can't quite remember the exact image, but it looked like they were, I don't know, I keep thinking they were ice skating or something, or they were, but they were moving. And it was on the garage door, and it was really strange. And there were smoke machines. So the smoke was actually going across the front of the garage. And um, so we went up the sidewalk to this house, and it was uh, on the street that was actually in front of mine. And so as soon as we walked up, we could hear the beginning of the Ghostbusters theme playing as we walked up and I'm wondering if he had it cued so that way whenever somebody was coming or if he just had random music playing I don't know how it worked out I just remember that the Ghostbusters theme was playing it was starting up as we were walking up the sidewalk so we opened so we knock on the door or ring bell whatever I think we rang the bell and the theme just comes on full tilt and the door opens and there's like a strobe light behind the guy and he's standing at the door and he's moving behind the strobe light and the strobe light is just making it look really slow and he's wearing a race dance mask from the animated Ghostbusters. So it wasn't even like Dan Aykroyd. It was like a mask from the cartoon and he was standing at the door holding this bucket and he's moving really slow like he's dancing to the music and uh, it was just really, really bizarre. But it was so funny, and the music, you know, blasting. It was probably the best house we went to for trick-or-treating that year. And um, never forget it. I haven't forgotten it all these years. Obviously, I just don't remember what happened, what the display was on the garage. But this guy went all out for Halloween. And I went trick-or-treating a few more years after that, and I don't remember them ever doing anything quite as exciting. But that one very magical year the strobe lights and the smoke machine and the music just very memorable loved the idea that this guy went completely all out for halloween now i'd like to introduce you to charles who's going to tell you a story about how a dream costume can be altered by the weather and the resulting horror of such a costume change this is the story of the year i learned to hate dressing up for halloween In early October of 1979, we had just moved to Anoka, Minnesota, 
Anoka is the official Halloween capital of the world. Because of this, they have all sorts of events, including a kitty parade. This is where the schools let all of the kids wear their costumes to school and march through town while all the proud parents watch along the road. Being new, I decided that I needed to do something special for the parade, that I needed to dress to impress. A store-bought costume just would not do, so I convinced my mom to help me make a mummy costume. Then, the night before the parade, it got cold. We're talking really cold, Minnesota cold. So we found ourselves suddenly sewing mummy bandages to my old green winter jacket at the last minute. We wanted to try to have it done before bedtime, and the minutes were slipping away like the Flash trying to beat Superman in a race. Somehow, by the end of the night, we had fixed my mummy costume for the cold. It was a very obese mummy now, but it was a mummy, and I was proud. The next morning, I headed into school. When I got into school, the other kids were really impressed with my mummy and complimented me on it. I was feeling pretty proud. That morning, the time that had sped by like the flash the night before was moving like the Great Molasses Flood of 1919 did to the streets of Boston. Time was standing still. Finally, after a torturous day of classes, it was time to get suited up and line up for the parade. This is where it really starts to go south. The mummy jacket we had made the night before, it didn't hold up on the walk to the parade route. At an alarming rate, the bandages started to fall off the jacket. Now, maybe it was because of how fast we had done the job. Maybe the material of the jacket just wasn't meant to have things sewn to it. All I know is that as I walked, I stopped looking like a chunky mummy, and I took on a whole new appearance. I started looking like a great big green blob with strands of white trailing behind it. And then it happened. The comments from the parents. Not knowing I was supposed to be the world's coolest mummy, they saw something else. A toilet-papered tree. With my green jacket, I looked like I had been teepeed. Now, this wouldn't have been a bad thing. After all, I still <laughs> looked like I was wearing a costume. Except kids are cruel, and they picked up on a chance to taunt the new kid. I now had a nickname that would stick with me for years before fading away. I was teepeed. It didn't stop there, either. For years, every Halloween, the comments would start. Hey, teepeed, need to borrow some toilet paper for your costume? and other comments that I won't even repeat at this point in my life. Now that I've told the story, I realize what an honor it was. Maybe it wasn't the best one to share this year. In spite of all that, I don't hate Halloween anymore. I've had a lot of good ones since then, especially since I've had my own kids and we go out trick-or-treating now. Although, in 1990, I did have another questionable one, but I'm out of time, so that one will have to be saved for the 2019 Retroist Halloween special. Next up is Ashley, who's going to talk about a spooky trip to a Halloween destination you might not have thought of. Where I grew up, outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, the local zoo did a Halloween, I don't know that you would call it a festival, but like a Halloween spooky type of celebration every year called Boo at the Zoo. Now, I've only gotten to go to Boo at the Zoo one time. When I did, I was about seven years old. My aunt, who is uh, sadly passed, my Aunt Button, and my cousin Jenna and I went to Boo at the Zoo. Now, I have always loved wearing costumes. I've always looked for excuses to wear costumes. I loved playing dress-up. And as an adult, I love cosplay. So I was very excited to wear my army costume. I wanted to be a soldier, so I was dressed in camouflage. I had face paint. I had borrowed... Uh, army helmet from another cousin of mine. It was great. It was a lot of fun. So anyway, my Aunt Button takes Jenna and I to Boo at the Zoo. Now, I don't have a lot of very clear memories of Boo at the Zoo, 
But one of the things that I remember distinctly was that we got a lot of candy. Also, at uh, first entrance, we walk through a set of doors and a boar's head comes swinging forward at us and we all scream and it was awesome. That was just such a great memory. I also remember on the ride back, Jenna was telling me about the Loch Ness Monster, which I'd never heard of before at that time. Didn't really get out very much as a kid. (laughs) So it was fun for me to hear about it. And me, in my big imagination, remembered looking out the window and saying, oh my gosh, I think I just saw the Loch Ness Monster. And Jenna then rolling her eyes and fussing at me. Ashley, you couldn't have possibly seen the Loch Ness Monster. The Loch Ness Monster's in Scotland, obviously. So anyway, it's one of my fondest memories of Halloween growing up, especially now because my aunt passed several years ago. And I'm glad that I got to have that experience with her. I hope that I get to have fun costumed experiences with my niece and nephew now that I'm an adult. And our final story comes from Vic Sage, who discusses an episode of Ray Bradbury Theater that still haunts him to this day. Hi, friends. It's that time of the season where the best way to spend the night is watching those perfect horror films and TV shows. Which is why I'm going to share with you a memory from Halloween Night that took place in 1985. It involves both William Shatner as well as Ray Bradbury. It's a creepy TV episode that while I don't always watch it on Halloween Night, it still is just as powerful today as the night when I first saw it. In 1985, on Halloween night, after leaving the school festival, I got back home in time to see the Ray Bradbury Theater episode entitled The Playground on HBO. I will admit my memory might be a little fuzzy on this, but I believe the premium channel was running a marathon block of the first four episodes. I obviously knew who William Shatner was, thanks to the Star Trek television series, in addition to his continuing role as Captain James T. Kirk in the then three motion pictures. In the playground, which had a screenplay by Ray Bradbury, obviously based on his own 1953 short story, which originally appeared in Esquire magazine, Shatner plays Charles Underhill, a widowed father of a young boy named Steve. The two have Charles's sister, Carol, living with him for the time being. She's lending a hand with the raising of Steve. The woman is confounded why her brother is so passionately opposed on Steve not being allowed to play at the local playground. That reason, as we see at the beginning of the episode and throughout, is Charles was horribly bullied. So much so that he's been psychologically scarred from it, I believe. While the man decides to check the place out, to see if he's overreacting, he witnesses the kids on the playground practically de-evolve into wild animals. This is a horror story, and the playground itself even before the supernatural elements kick in, is shown in a very threatening light. Soon, an impossible threat from the past appears. A shadowy form of a child that Charles knew, named Ralph, begins to call to him from the top of a slide on the playground. Charlie! Come on in and play, Charlie! To be fair, much of the episode is presented as it could very well be, just Charles imagining all of it. But by the end, however, Bradbury reveals this is indeed real. Furthermore, it shows just how much Charles loves his son. He may not be able to protect him from the threat of the playground, but he can certainly take his place. One night, as they step onto the playground, the two literally switch bodies, and we leave the episode with Ralph leading a mob of truly monster children as they punch, scratch, and claw at Charles in Steve's body on the playground. (laughs) 
while Steve, in Charles's adult body, walks away in bewilderment. Now, Shatner does a fine job in his role, with not too many moments of his legendary pauses. And when I first saw The Playground in 1985, I knew all too well how it felt to be bullied. As I've shared before, I was pretty mercilessly picked on as a kid. Thankfully, not as bad as Charles Underhill, though. So while the episode itself was rather scary, I began to stress a little, begin to think about maybe, just maybe those kids who made my younger days such a minefield might find a way to haunt me as an adult. I'm happy to say that hasn't been the case yet, but I can assure you that I don't visit my childhood playground at night, just in case. In closing, if you need a great bit of TV horror to watch during Halloween, then I highly suggest you check out Ray Bradbury Theater's adaptation of The Playground. Thanks to everyone who participated in the Retroist Halloween Special 2018 edition. Halloween only comes once a year. It's a great time on the site, and I really enjoy releasing podcasts related to the Halloween season, so I'm very sad to see it go. But I'm very happy that some great people reached out to me and are willing to tell some tales and join in the storytelling, even though a lot of what is done on the Retroist is related to a specific subject it still comes out through the lens of the experience of the people writing it. And so I think a lot of their personality is reflected in that. And I very much encourage that behavior in writing and podcasting. So thanks again to everyone who contributed. Thanks to everyone for listening. And I hope you have a great Halloween. Thanks for listening to the show. And I have a lot of thank yous for the people who participated in this show. First, I'd like to start off with Josh. He is the co-owner of the historic Mayfair Theater in Ottawa, Canada, which is one of the oldest single-screen independent cinemas to be found anywhere. So if you are in Ottawa, what are you doing listening to this? Head to the Mayfair Theater. Josh is the creator and writer of Zomkeys, with three issues currently available on Winterstar Comics. He has written and directed a short film that was screened at San Diego Comic-Con, and he co-produced and co-directed a roller derby documentary for the CBC. Josh can be heard weekly on the Mayfair Theater podcast, and he was once killed by Jango Fett in a Star Wars comic. Allison Venizio. You can find Allison not only on The Retroist every week, but she's also the creator of Allison's Written Words. You can find Allison's blog at allisonvenezioWrites.com and on Twitter at Allison Geeks Out. Thanks to Charles Potomac for sharing his story of a remarkable costume that I would have loved to have seen, although I would not have loved to have that nickname. Charles Potomac is the host of the Last Hometown podcast, which you can find on Facebook at facebook.com slash lasthometown, and on Twitter at lasthometown. Ashley Thomas, who goes online as the nerdy blogger, you can find her work at nerdyblogging.wordpress.com. There she writes about film, television, geek culture, and of course, the occasional retro goodness. You can find Ashley on Twitter at The Nerdy Blogger and on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Nerdy Blogger. Finally, my cohort, Vic Sage, you can find on The Retroist on a regular basis. Vic is a powerhouse of retro goodness. Not only does he write on The Retroist, but he also has six million podcasts that he updates almost weekly. Some that you might want to check out are his Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast, 
Saturday Frights, which he co-hosts with The Projectionist, and his Retro Radio Memories podcast. All of those properties can be found on Facebook, some on Twitter. All of them are on your favorite podcasting app. So if you like what we're doing here, why don't you give Vic's other podcasts a try? I guarantee you'll love them. If you want to follow Vic online on Twitter, you can follow him at, at VicSage2005. If you're interested in following me, and you might be because you're listening to this, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Facebook.com slash Retroist.com and Twitter.com slash Retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you have musical needs, you can email Peachy at Peachy at Retroist.com. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Venezio. That's a solid name. Fun to say. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.